Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Welcome back to the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast. I'm honored you are joining me today. And in case you missed last week's exciting news, I wanted to share with you guys that the podcast now has over half a million downloads worldwide, and I wanted to thank you all for your continued support. Before we jump into today's podcast, I really wanted to quickly remind you guys to please leave me a positive review on the podcast as it really helps to boost me in the chart ratings, as does your subscription to the podcast. So if you can, please take a moment to pause this episode, hit the subscribe button and leave me a rating or review. Thank you so much for your support, guys. And I'm so excited to bring you this episode today on nutrition, health, and lifestyle factors that influence appetite and fullness with UK-based dietitian Tai Ibitoye. We begin the podcast by talking about what Tai does day-to-day as a clinical dietitian and also a PhD doctoral researcher in the food and nutrition science space. Next, Tai shares with our listeners some of her findings from her public health study, which investigated the prevalence of less healthy food adverts near schools in London with high rates of childhood obesity. We then dive into her current research looking at appetites among the UK elderly patients who may or may not be malnourished. On the flip side of this, we then talk about the overweight population trying to lose weight who say their appetites are always super high. Then Tai tells us the current research around satiety and fullness. We also deep dive into other lifestyle factors that influence our appetite. Finally, we discuss mindful eating, what it is and how to do it. Follow Tai on Instagram. She's at Tai Talks Nutrition or her website, which is TaiTalksNutrition.com. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and let's kick off this week's episode. Welcome, Ty, to the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast. We're very excited to have you on today, all the way on the other side of the world. <laughs> thank you for having me. And we thank you so much for coming on at such a ridiculously late hour. The time zones between Australia and UK don't really match up, so we do really appreciate you sharing your expertise with our listeners today. No worries. <laughs> now, can you start off by telling us a little bit more about yourself and what made you want to become a dietitian to begin with? Sure. Um, so my name is Ty. I am a registered dietitian and a doctoral researcher based in the UK. Um, I have over six years experience working within the food and nutrition industry. Um, I have experience assessing individuals from different ethnic backgrounds, different age groups with different types of medical conditions, such as type 2 diabetes, um, cardiovascular disease, stroke, cancer, liver disease, and inflammatory bowel disease. Um, and one of my role as a dietitian is to use up-to-date, evidence-based information on nutrition to help individuals um, manage their conditions and optimize their health and nutrition. Um, I'm currently involved in nutrition research, investigating the effects of different food textures on appetite and and dietary intake in older adults, which is very exciting. I decided to become a dietitian because I really just wanted to help improve um, the quality of life of people through diet. And what is so interesting about nutrition is that nutrition has the power to reduce the risk or treat 
or manage um, most medical conditions. So I just really wanted to delve into that and utilize my skills and expertise to help people improve their diet and nutrition. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that's sort of the the one thing that's always drawn me to the nutrition field as well um, is just the power that food has, you know, the power, like it's almost as powerful as medicine. Like we can treat and cure so many diseases purely just using food. And what got you interested um, in the research side of things? I always loved reading. I always loved researching from a young age. And so when I was doing my training um, to become a dietitian, we had a course module called Research Nutrition, and I really enjoyed it. And during my public health placement, I had the opportunity to carry out a big public health study investigating childhood obesity a bit more in the UK because we know that's a current public health issue. And that just really fueled my interest into pursuing a career in research. Wonderful. And I'd love for you to share with our listeners, if it's all right with you, um, some of your findings from your public health study, because um, I'm sure that you, or from what I was reading, you were sort of investigating the prevalence of what we might term sort of like less less healthy food alternatives and food advertising and adverts um, near some schools in London. Is that right? That's correct. Um, so as I mentioned, um, childhood obesity is a major public health issue here in the UK. Mm. Um, it was actually previously reported that one in three children will be overweight or obese by the time they leave primary school. Wow. There's existing studies showing that adverts and persuasive marketing of food products that are high in fat, salt and sugar may actually influence children's dietary choices. And yes, we know that obesity is very multifactorial and there's different factors that can contribute to obesity. But we know that food adverts exposures may play some sort of role um, to this. And so that's what formed the basis of my research. And I basically investigated the prevalence of adverts near schools in London. And we basically, what we found was quite shocking to say the least. So in total, we found 369 adverts near schools. And 30% of it was actually adverts that promoted food products and non-alcoholic beverages, but almost 70% of those food adverts were classified as less healthy, which was quite um, very interesting. What we also found was that the most frequent food adverts were cereals and cereal-based products, and then the second most prevalent adverts were non-alcoholic beverages, which were tended to be high in sugar. So it was really, really interesting um, to find these findings. And so what we did with it was that we went back to the um, local government to just basically present our findings to them because the local government have the power to restrict adverts that can actually impact public health. Um, And so we basically told them about our adverts and they are planning to create a healthier environment for children in their schools as a strategy to tackle childhood obesity. Yeah, wow. That's an incredible number of just adverts that I guess as a child are just constantly in your face all day long, like over 300 of them is a crazy amount. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Yeah. And even when I think about, um, I've done only a tiny bit of work in terms of like children and childhood obesity and that sort of thing. Not a lot, but I did work as a public health nutritionist. And two of the biggest things we really struggled with were healthier alternatives for breakfast and also the drinks. You know, I used to see, um, 
very, very small children, you know, still in prams, like two or three years old, drinking Coke or drinking juice straight from the bottle. And I guess their parents just thought that that, you know, maybe wasn't as bad or wasn't, wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't harmful or anything like that. So I think just even those two adverts alone and you, your research being able to pinpoint that it was really geared towards, um, you know, sugary breakfast cereals and, and drinks other than water is a really powerful message for the government to sort of stand up and take notice as well. Exactly, 100%. And it's not just adverts that can actually, that may contribute to childhood obesity. And um, there are so many factors. And um, this is just a small fraction of a bigger um, issue that we are currently facing here in the UK. And what I basically presented to the government is that tackling obesity is a shared responsibility. The onus is not just on the government to restrict adverts. We need to provide more education in schools, potentially train teachers, and provide nutrition education to parents as well, and provide healthy food alternatives for children. And also we want to address health inequalities as well, because there may be some um, people who may not be able to have um, access to a healthier diet. And so we need to make sure that we are, are addressing these issues. Mm, couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's it's not just one thing. You know, it really frustrates me online when I see people saying, you know, obesity is because we eat too much or because we move too less. Like there's so many factors that go into it, aren't there? Particularly around children, not just adults. Exactly. Exactly. Now, I know at the moment, um, your some of your research that you're doing at the hospital is really looking into appetites among the elderly in the UK. Um, that fascinates me because I was a clinical dietitian for six years as well, um, and one of the wards I used to work on was um, post-surgical ward as well. Um, and so, can you tell our listeners what you have found so far? Um, because I know that when I worked as a hospital-based dietitian, we spent a large part of our day trying to combat malnutrition in the elderly due to poor appetites and trying to get somebody to, to eat to when they have these huge requirements post-surgery or with a new cancer diagnosis is incredibly hard when they just don't feel hungry, kind of like ever. Yes, so I'm still in the early stages of my research, so there are no findings at the moment. I'm still recruiting participants to get involved in the study. But essentially what I am planning to investigate is to see whether different food textures, such as um, a prairie texture, can affect an older adult's appetite or dietary intake. Mm -hmm. And we know that in older adults, swallowing difficulties is quite common for various reasons. And those with swallowing difficulties are required to have a texture modified diet so that they can prevent the risk of aspiration or even choking. But as we know, is that um, the compliance to a texture modified diet is quite poor. And for various reasons, maybe due to presentation, um, maybe an older adult just has poor appetite and just can't be bothered to taste it. Or maybe it might be the way it tastes or the way it feels. And so I really want to delve into that to investigate the actual reasons to why dietary intake is quite low um, in those who do require a texture modified diet. And my hopes are to find the reasons why and then optimize the presentation to see whether an older adult may be more likely to consume a texture modified diet. So that's just one aspect of my study. Another aspect is to see whether protein-enhanced um, texture-modified diets can actually have an impact 
on an older adult's appetite. And the reason why I'm looking at protein specifically is that protein requirements are increased amongst the elderly population just to maintain their muscle mass. But then we also know that protein increases satiety. And so it can be, you know, counterproductive if we are trying to encourage older adults to increase their protein intake, but then protein may also increase satiety, which can you know, also decrease their appetite as well. And so I just really want to see if it actually has any effect on their appetite and if so, how we can actually overcome these barriers to improve their dietary intake and in turn improve their nutritional status. Yeah, that's amazing. Good on you because it's just malnutrition and the prevalence in hospital systems is just scary. And it's something that nobody really thinks about. You know, we think, oh, malnutrition is sort of happening in third world countries, but it's very much very prevalent, you know, UK, Australia, all around the world, particularly in our elderly patients. And one of the strategies we were trying just as I was leaving the hospital about um, probably nearly two years now was using um, what we would call food molds. So, you know, we'd puree up the broccoli and then we'd sort of put it into a mold. So it kind of looked like broccoli or it looks like carrot. And we were finding just from some initial data collection that, um, you know, the amounts of foods eaten by patients um, was, you know, slightly higher and it was um, it was more of a positive thing as well. So I'd be really excited to see your research um, once you do finish up um, your research in the hospital as well. So whenever you get the findings, I'll be sure to share it with you. <laughs> yeah, that would be great, Ty. And then I guess on the flip side of that, um, and I've seen you posting a little bit more about this on your um, Instagram as well. When we think about appetites as well, um, does this sort of, some of these research or some of these principles you're investigating, do you think that would also translate to the overweight population who are trying to lose weight? Because I get so many people always saying to me, I'm always hungry. I'm starving. Like I eat and I need so much food every day. Do you think that those people with really high appetites and, you know, those ones that really struggle to reduce their portions, is there a little research or um, I guess science around foods and textures that may help to increase or decrease feelings of satiety and fullness? There are a few research studies investigating that, but then um, it's quite hard to generalise it to a population who may be overweight or obese. Most of these studies looked at generally individuals with a ideal or what you would say a quote-unquote healthy BMI. Um, So it's quite hard to generalise it. In terms of looking at appetite levels and dietary intake in individuals who are overweight or obese, it's not really straightforward because there are so many factors that come into play. So some people might find it hard to reduce their portion sizes and some people might find it hard um, to, I guess, suppress their Um, appetite but then there are so many factors to consider so things like existing medical conditions there may be on certain medications it might be a mental health issue we need to also look at social economic backgrounds as well there are so many factors that you know come into play and it might be a thing where you know individuals may be trying their hardest to reduce their portion sizes and also trying their hardest to make healthier lifestyle changes but it's just not straightforward and as we know um, obesity is a very complex and complicated um, issue. Mm, definitely. And again, that's sort of, I guess, the point in the conversation where we spoke the benefits of seeing a dietitian one-on-one, don't we? Of course, yes, of course. 
because there are so many things to think about. But I know that just whole foods in general, and when I start working with clients, they benefit so much in terms of just feeling so much fuller and more satisfied after meals. If they're if they're obviously trying to lose weight, not the other way, not trying to gain weight, by increasing the amounts of fiber and whole foods in their diet, just, just the act of having to chew that food more and eating a little bit slower can have huge impacts on um, how full and satisfied they feel after their meals. Yes, and that's what um, we call mindful eating or practicing mindfulness when it comes to having your meals. So as you mentioned, um, there are evidence-based techniques that people can do um, to control their appetite or monitor their appetite levels. So as you mentioned, um, chewing their food slowly, making sure that there's no distractions around them so that they can concentrate fully on the food that is presented to them and just basically being in tune with their body as they are eating, recognizing certain cues for hunger, and also trying to understand the reasons for why they are eating. Many times we focus on what we are eating, or whether this food is good for us or bad for us, but then we also need to understand why we are eating. Are we eating because we are hungry, or are we eating because because of emotions, maybe we're stressed, maybe we're upset, maybe we're angry. So it's really important to not just focus on what you're eating, but why. Mm, I love that. And I sort of term that, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, I sort of call it head hunger and tummy hunger. Are you truly physically hungry or is this more what we call this head hunger, where you might be bored or stressed or emotional or even just that you're super excited and some people like to eat when they're really excited. So just trying to differentiate between is it head hunger or is it tummy hunger? Exactly. Now, any other, um, I guess, lifestyle factors that you can think of that may influence our appetite and I guess satiety and feelings of fullness? Because I know as an example, when I don't get enough sleep, I'm generally much hungrier than the other days where I have gotten adequate sleep. <laughs> so we know that sleep can actually um, affect someone's appetite levels. Um, so there were quite a few studies showing that sleep deprivation can lower leptin and increase ghrelin levels. Um, so ghrelin is what we call the hunger hormone that is secreted from the gut. And that this basically stimulates appetite and it's basically suppressed after eating. So studies have shown that people who have a low sleep quality have increased levels of this hunger hormone and decreased levels of leptin. So leptin is what we say. Um, so basically it reduces appetite levels. Um, and when there's a deficiency in leptin, it basically stimulates appetite levels. Um, so yes, so sleep is one of them. Um, and in the UK, um, it's recommended that most adults need between six to nine hours of sleep every night. Um, so that's the tip that people can um, incorporate in their day-to-day lives um, if they really want to regulate their appetite levels just to make sure they are having um, a good night's sleep, basically. We know that physical activity is also another factor. Um, So there are studies showing that physical activity can influence our food choices. So normally when people work out a lot, um, they tend to look for rich carbohydrate foods just to replenish um, their energy stores. And on the flip side, actually, studies have shown that when you are really active, so doing like an intense workout, it can actually suppress your hunger for short periods, periods of time, which was quite interesting to know. Um, but then obviously when it comes to studies, we can't 
you know, generalized findings to every single person. And we know that there are individual differences. Another factor is distractions. Um, So there are some evidence showing that distractions when eating can make people less responsive to their appetite signals. So if they are watching TV or on their laptop or um, on their phone, they are not really in tuned to what they are eating and they tend to miss um, some of the key appetite signals. So that's why we say when you are eating, try to avoid any distractions. So turn your phone off, turn your TV off and just enjoy your meal. So that's what we like to tell people. Another thing is alcohol consumption. Um, So there are studies showing that alcohol can stimulate appetite. And actually, when I was working within in a hospital, seeing adults who were very malnourished um, and who had low appetite levels. Um, We would recommend, obviously using clinical judgment, that maybe just drink a small glass of red wine just to stimulate your appetite because, you know, there were evidence showing that that can actually help. Uh, But then obviously we need to provide them with further guidance. Um, In the UK, it's advised that we shouldn't drink more than 14 units a week. So obviously we need to make sure that we are um, protecting the public when we are saying that, yeah, you can have a bit of alcohol, but not too much. So that's just one factor. Another factor is smoking. So um, we know that smoking can influence appetite levels and also it can influence food intake. And this is because of um, nicotine. So nicotine is sometimes termed as the appetite suppressant. Um, So it basically suppresses appetite levels. And there's studies showing that people who smoke tend to have inadequate food intake. And that's because um, they don't really feel hungry. But as soon as they stop smoking, so when they quit, all of a sudden they tend to be really, really hungry and really, really peckish. Um, So that's quite interesting um, to know. And what other factors can affect appetite? Social interactions, actually. Um, So we know that when people are around others, they tend to eat more. And this is quite interesting to know because when it comes to the elderly population, they tend to isolate themselves a lot more. And we know that they have poor um, food intake as well. But then when they are around others, you see them to, well, some of them tend to increase their food intake and we tend to see an improvement in their appetite levels. So um, we like to tell the elderly population that when it comes to mealtimes, that they should um, be around others just to encourage them to eat a bit more. So yeah, so that's all of the factors that I can think of from the top of my head that can influence appetite and food intake. Wonderful, Ty. That was a very, very comprehensive list. Thank you. And I think the important point to uh, remember for our listeners at home is that everybody is different. And as you mentioned, some you know, some things in the alcohol, for example, in some people it can stimulate appetite and in other people it can, um, they don't feel hungry at all. So everybody does respond to different things, which I think is so important for our listeners to remember and understand at home. But you did touch on something that I really wanted to ask you about, um, which I think is so incredibly helpful for just living a healthy lifestyle long term, and that is mindful eating. So can we sort of take a step back, Ty, and let our listeners know exactly what mindful eating is and what are one or two things 
tips they might be able to sort of start doing at home if they'd like to be a little bit more mindful around their meals? Sure. Um, so my, so there are different um, definitions of mindful eating, but generally mindful eating is just being present when you eat and, and paying attention to it paying attention to the food that's presented to you and being aware of the food, being aware of your body as well as you're eating. It's basically being aware of physical hunger and also satiety levels as well to help inform your decisions um, on when you should start eating and when you should finish um, your meal as well. Um, it's also about appreciating the food, so appreciating the flavours, appreciating the textures as well, and also the sounds of the food, and also knowing the differences between emotional hunger and physical hunger. And there are some tips that people can um, incorporate in their day-to-day lives in order for them to practice um, mindful eating. One of the tips is basically to slow down when you're eating. So we like to tell people to chew their food well and take time with it. A nice tip is that when people put the food in their mouth, they should place their cutleries down. And generally, most people, once they've had a mouthful, they are still holding the spoon in their hand or the fork in their hand, um, which actually makes them feel less relaxed so when you're putting so once you've had the mouthful put your cutleries down and just relax and just enjoy the food in your mouth chew it well um and then once you've done with the chewing then you can go back and repeat the same um process and it just basically helps to enjoy your eating experience too Another tip is to try to avoid distractions. And I know I said that um, before, but it really helps for people to just be focused and be more mindful when they're eating. So when you're eating, make sure that you're away from your laptop or your computer. Make sure that you're not on your phone. I know that social media is um, on the rise at the moment. Everyone's on social media, but try not to go on Instagram or on Twitter. Just enjoy your meal so that you can just be more mindful. Another thing that people can do is just to listen to their body. Um, So listen to your body and you can also train your body as well to understand when it's feeling hungry and also understand when your body is feeling full as well. So we like to tell people that when they are consuming their meals try to go for small portions first just to tune in to what they are eating and then if they still feel hungry after that portion they can go back for seconds if they want to and also they should try to discern their body and understand if the body is actually hungry or thirsty um, because we know that thirst and hunger can sometimes be mistaken so if you're having that feeling Try to have a glass of water or a drink and see how your body feels. Um, if it's first, then you know that that feeling might go away. But then if you still feel that hunger feeling, then you know that, okay, now I really need to eat something. And yeah, you should. And um, so it's just being discerning um, when it comes to certain cues. 
also people should just appreciate the sensory aspects of food um food is such a wonderful thing um it comes in different colors it comes in different textures there's different um smells to food and people should just take time to appreciate these sensory aspects of the food during each mouthful and that can help people to be more mindful and be more appreciative um of the food that they are eating i like to tell people to express gratitude that can also help to just be more mindful because most of us are privileged to eat are privileged to consume a healthy meal a nutritious meal and it's just to express gratitude because there are others who may not have the same opportunities to be presented with um, nutritious meals so I always tell people to just express gratitude and also to reflect on their thoughts and feelings as well so recognize when they are eating if it's for other reasons than hunger so as I mentioned that they might there might be some emotional cues um so just try to understand why you are eating are you eating because you feel hungry or are you eating because you feel sad or um, anxious or stressed and if it's an emotional trigger then it's trying to find ways to cope um, with those emotions, whether that be confiding to confiding with a friend or a family member or speaking to a healthcare professional. So um, it's really, really important to understand the reasons why you're feeling hungry and why you are eating as well. And also another tip is that people should consider the foods they choose to eat. Most people label foods as good, bad, naughty, nice. And we should stay away from those um, those terminologies because food is food and all food is actually good for us. And actually it's part of a healthy, balanced diet. I like to tell people that moderation is key. So it's okay to have a biscuit. It's okay to have an ice cream you know, no one's going to make you feel bad about it. And it's just to understand that no food is bad and no food is considered as naughty. Food is food. And it's just about having the right balance throughout the week. So, yeah, but it's trying to consider the foods they are eating and their perspective on other foods should change as well. And that can help people to be more mindful when it comes to their eating. Wonderful. Thank you, Ty. There were some amazing tips that you've given us. And on this podcast, we have a mantra that I like to call 10% better. So a lot of people try to sort of overhaul their lifestyle and do everything at once. So I'd just like to remind our listeners that although Ty gave us some incredible tips, if you feel like you're a little bit overwhelmed or you think, oh, mindful eating would be great, but I just don't know where to start, maybe re-listen to this podcast, jot down a few of her mindful eating tips and just pick one or two and start there. And then when that becomes a little bit more um, sort of easy to do on a day-to-day basis, you can pick another one and another one. Um, But just don't let yourself, I guess, become so overwhelmed that you just go, oh, well, that sounds great, but I'm not going to do it. And that's what so many people do in terms of trying to live a healthy lifestyle long-term. They want to get there, but they can't seem to to sort of take that first or second step. So just a little quick reminder for our listeners at home, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to do everything, even just taking that first or second step in terms of trying to improve your lifestyle um, for the better can be really beneficial as well. Yes. And Ty, um, I wanted to ask you quickly as well, when it comes to mindful eating, because you're definitely more um, of an expert sort of in this area, how do you feel about the principle? I'm sure it originated somewhere in Japan, um, Harubichu 
I can't exactly remember what it was called, but it was basically the principle that you eat until you're 80% full. And I sort of love that because so many people aren't really in tune with their fullness um, mechanisms and they tend to overeat and they finish a meal. Then they go, oh, I've had too much. I, I really feel quite sick in my stomach. So are you sort of a fan or have you heard of this principle around eating until you're about 80% full and in combination with mindful eating? Yes, I've heard of that principle. And that's what I like to tell some of my clients just to eat until they feel comfortably full. And as you mentioned, most people um, tend to eat until they feel uncomfortably full. And then some tend to complain of like bloating and stomach aches and things like that. I like to tell my clients just eat until you feel comfortably full, not totally full that you feel like you're going to, you know, explode, but I'm just comfortably full. Because mm, it does take our brain a little bit to sort of kick in and realize that we've had enough food, particularly if we are eating super quickly as well, doesn't it? Exactly. So it's really important to just take your time with your meals, chew well, and just to be in tune with the hunger cues and the satiety cues as well. I, I read somewhere that it takes about 20 minutes for your brain to tell your body that it feels full. And that's why it's so important that um, people take their time when it comes to consuming their meals. Mm, great tip. And even just keeping an eye on the clock, because say, for example, you've got a wonderful stir fry for dinner and, and you know, you started eating at, I don't know, say 7 p.m., for example, if you're three quarters through that stir fry and it's four minutes past seven, <laughs> I think you can safely assume that you're probably eating far too fast. So if you're someone that's newer to mindful eating and you're someone that often finds that they eat very quickly, they feel quite full and quite unwell after the meal, very bloated, um, very uncomfortable. I think it is a really um, important skill, particularly initially to just keep an eye on the clock and sort of aim to sort of visually divide your plate into about half and aim to take about 10 minutes to finish each half. And as Ty mentioned, putting your fork in between down in between your meals, having a sip of water, sitting back in your chair, chewing your food properly, because all of those sort of skills come together when we think about mindful eating, doesn't it? Don't they? Yes, it does. 100%. Wonderful. Well, Ty, my last question for you. Um, I was having a quick look through your website and I saw a great blog that you did around healthy eating tips for African and African Caribbean individuals. And I would love for you to share these tips with our listeners at home as I'm really conscious that I really want to try and increase the diversity of tips that we can share with our listeners on our podcast from different cultural backgrounds. So if that's all right with you, I would love for you to tell our listeners at home a little bit more about um, African and African Caribbean sort of cuisines and healthy options. Yeah, sure. So I did a post about that a couple months ago, I believe, on my Instagram. And this actually came from a conversation I had with a few clients of mine. They felt like they had to stop eating their favorite cultural foods in order to be healthier or in order to reduce their risk of chronic diseases. Mm. They felt like they had to eat cauliflower rice or lentils or bulgogi and all these other foods that were quite abnormal to them. And I, I, I just basically told them, no, you, you really don't have to. There are healthy tweaks you can make in your diet um, to make it more healthier and you can still eat your um, cultural foods. So in the UK, we basically base our healthy eating guidelines on something called the Eat Well Guide, which basically shows us the proportions of food we need to eat in order to have a healthy, balanced diet. And um, so there are five 
sections, I guess you can say. So it's fruits and vegetables, starchy carbohydrates, protein, dairy and dairy alternatives, oils and spreads. Um, so those are the main five segments of the Eat Well Guide. And so in terms of fruits and vegetables, the African and Caribbean diet is quite rich in a lot of these fruits and vegetables. Um, And so I was just advising people that they should still follow the guidelines in terms of having at least five portions of fruits and vegetables a day. That's not going to change. But then they should include things like papaya, jackfruit, eggplants, and some green vegetables like callaloo, uh, which is quite common in the Caribbean diet, okra and spinach, which is quite a common vegetable food in the African diet. Um, So I was just telling them that they should include more of these in their diet. The African diet is quite rich in soups and stews. Um, So I was encouraging people that they should add some of these vegetables into these dishes um, to make it more wholesome and more nutritious. I also mentioned that they should steam their vegetables um, to retain these nutrients. So in the African and Caribbean diet, we tend to fry our foods a lot and boil them, um, which obviously we know can lose some of the main important nutrients. It can lose the flavour and the colour of certain fruits and vegetables. Um, So I encourage individuals to steam or put it in the microwave instead. And when it comes to starchy carbohydrates, again, my clients felt like they had to have lentils and bulgur wheat and couscous um, in order to be healthier. But I told them, no, you don't really need to do all of that. Um, So rice is a staple dish in both the African and Caribbean diets. Um, We tend to have long grain rice when it comes to our um, rice dishes. And I encourage that they should consider using things rice like basmati rice or brown rice or wild rice, which is quite high in fibre. And as we know, that fibre helps to keep the digestive system working well. And so I encourage them to include these in their diet. There was something called yam that both Caribbean and African individuals tend to consume a lot of. And in most African cultures, they tend to fry their yam. And so I said, instead of frying, you can boil your yam or bake it instead and just be mindful of portion sizes um, in order to make your diet a bit more healthier. And um, there's also something called plantain, which is it's almost similar to banana and it's really, really nice and sweet. And we tend to fry it a lot because it's really nice. Um, but we know that too many fried foods is not really the best for us. Um, so I encourage people to bake or grill plantain instead of frying. However, that's not to say that they shouldn't fry it ever again. There are some people who may choose to fry plantain. And if they do, they should just make sure that um, they use a tiny bit of oil when it comes to the frying and just to remove any excess oil using kitchen roll instead. We tend to eat a lot of potatoes as well. And so I just encourage them to, um, instead of frying their potatoes, bake it or boil it and leave the skin on potatoes as well, just to increase their fiber intake. When it comes to protein, in some cultures, they tend to eat a lot of meat. 
Um, and that's not to say that meat is bad for you because it isn't. It's a good source of vitamin B12. It's a good source of protein and iron. But then we know that excessive red meat consumption may not be good for us. And so um, they should try to reduce the amount of meat they are eating in their diet and try to replace it with fish instead. So aiming for at least two portions of fish every week. In the UK, the guidelines is to have at least one portion of oily fish, such as salmon or mackerel. So I encourage people to have fish options Or if they don't eat fish, then they can swap with vegetables instead um, to make their food more nutritious. And when it comes to foods that are quite high in fat, salt and sugar, um, we tend, some of our snacks tends to be quite high in these. And so I just encourage people that I'm not here to say that you shouldn't eat these snacks at all, but just eat it less often and in very, very small amounts. Um, there are healthier snack options they can go for. So things like plain popcorn or uns- unsalted nuts, or even things like having things like vegetable sticks or um, having a fruit salad instead. And just again, to make them diet more wholesome. Um, In the African diet, we tend to consume a lot of salt. And this is quite evident when it comes to our chronic disease risk. So we are at risk of things like hypertension and stroke. And when it comes to our salt intake, we add a lot of salt. When it comes to our cooking, we add a lot of stock cubes in our cooking as well, which contains a lot of salt. And so I encourage um, individuals to reduce their salt intake by avoiding using salt in their cooking and use things like fresh herbs and spices instead or they can make their own stock by boiling vegetables or boiling the bones of chicken or boiling the bones of fish as well just to create a nice stock for them to use and when it comes to their cooking. Wonderful, Ty. So many wonderful tips that you've got and all the foods you're mentioning sounded so delicious. It's quite early here in Australia and I haven't had breakfast yet and I was like, oh, I'm feeling very hungry. (laughs) (laughs) I have actually had, when you were mentioning the banana, uh, the plantain, I've had um, baked plantain chips before and I must say they are absolutely delicious. (laughs) They are. And it is, you did touch on a really important point where people from different cultural backgrounds often feel like they almost have to stop eating their cultural foods in order to be healthy. And I get that question a lot through just very young people um, through my TikTok account saying to me, you know, I'm a... um, Chinese background, we eat rice for every meal, literally like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I want to lose some weight and be healthy. Do I have to give that up? And so it is quite sad thinking that people have to give up what's important to them um, and the basis of their cultural diets in order to sort of be quote unquote healthy. And I think that you mentioned some really wonderful tips in order to still stick with the foods that we love culturally, but how to make some easy swaps to those things like, you know, baking it, not frying it, or just reducing our portion sizes in some amounts and filling up on more wholesome foods like fresh fruits and um, nuts and that sort of thing rather than completely you know flipping our diet and having to eat um, grains for example like quinoa and mm-hmm. that sort of thing that we might not really be familiar with and that are actually quite quite expensive when it comes to you know brown rice or basmati rice is equally as healthy but sort of um, uh, can be a lot more affordable as well yes 
Exactly. So you mentioned some wonderful tips. Thank you so much for those. You're welcome. And Ty, um, that's probably, I guess, all that we have time for today. I won't keep you too long because I know it's very, very late. Um, but would you like to share with our listeners at home where they can um, reach out to you, follow you in terms of social media and your website as well? Because I know you've got a few more blogs on your website as well. People might love to have a read of. Yeah, sure. So my website is Um And I'm quite active on Instagram, which is at Thai Talks Nutrition. Wonderful. And you do do some wonderful posts so for our listeners at home pop on over and give Ty a follow on Instagram and check out some of the wonderful infographics that she does she really does break down some quite complex um, evidence-based nutrition messages into some very easy to understand infographics which look wonderful as well you're very talented in that respect Ty well thank you so much for joining us on this podcast today it's been a pleasure and thank you for sharing with us a lot of your wisdom and knowledge um, in some of these important areas thank you for having me wonderful and listeners we will catch you in the next podcast next week.